This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome to another episode of the Worth Recovery Podcast. My name is Amy. I'm your host here, and I'm a sex addict, and I have been sober since December 2nd of 2012. So uh, it's the last Wednesday of the month, and so I'm bringing back um, the series that we're going to do called Worth Reading, where I review or share some of the books that I've read. Um, and their impact on my life and what they bring to the world of sex addiction recovery. So this is uh, something that I started last year in 2021. I did one episode. Um, It's one of my failed projects that I started last year when I started podcasting again um, about reviewing these books worth reading. But I have thought about it all year and I've accumulated books and I've started episodes and and so I'm excited to share some of those with you as we go along. Um, if you have a specific book that you want me to review, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at amy at worthrecovery.com and uh, share with me what book you would like me to review or you'd like me to look at or talk about. I would be happy to do that. So... Um, I'm sharing some of the books that have meant the most or had the most impact on me in my recovery um, and particularly around women in sex addiction because there's just not a lot of information there. There's not a lot of good data. There's not a lot of even just good stories um, where people share their experiences as a female, as a woman in sex addiction recovery. And so I'm focusing some of these books on that genre or that area. So last year when I started this episode or this series, I should say, um, I started with the big book because the the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, because that really was for me one of the very first books I was introduced to in recovery Um, because I got into 12-step recovery really quickly and it had a huge, huge impact on me. And so I shared with you uh, that book and some of the pieces that were important to me in that book. Today, I am going to be covering a book called Ready to Heal. Uh, This is uh, by Kelly McDaniel. She is one of my favorite people in the recovery world, particularly for women. She focuses primarily on women and sex addiction in her practice and what she has done. She has, uh, this this book was, I believe, her first book, Ready to Heal, and the the subtitle is Breaking Free of Addictive Relationships. It was originally written in 2008, uh, and then it had an update in 2012, and that's the only one that I've seen is the 2012 one because I entered recovery in 2011. So I was about maybe a year and a half into recovery when my therapist said, hey, have you heard of this book? And I read it. Uh, it, For me, if if you're a listener of my podcast, you know that I had a ongoing on again off again relationship with a man named Steve and uh and it was one of those last things in recovery 
as I was getting sober in recovery, it was kind of one of those last things where I still had contact with him while we weren't acting out per se. We still had some contact and I was having a difficult time letting go of that. And so my therapist recommended a couple different books, which we're going to review. But this one particularly, Ready to Heal, was helpful for me in a lot of different ways. And so I'm going to share some of those. I have got, I think, 10, 10 things from this book that I want to talk about and share and focus on how they impacted me in recovery. So in the introduction of this book, on the very first page, it's like not even a numbered page, it's a Roman numeral number, page nine, uh, Kelly writes, for a woman, healing from love and sex addiction requires an understanding of the disease from one, an early rupture and attachment with your caregivers, and two, patriarchal norms and expectations and culture. So I'm going to read that one more time. For a woman, healing from love and sex addiction requires an understanding of the disease from one, an early rupture and attachment with your caregivers, and two, patriarchal norms and expectations in culture. So when I first started recovery, one of the reasons this was kind of revelatory to me is because I really wasn't aware of patriarchy or hadn't really even thought about at least to a any kind of deep extent the cultural norms that we have for women I just I hadn't really thought about that I hadn't really considered that I hadn't really thought about how they played into my beliefs or my belief system or my addiction system my impaired thinking I hadn't really even thought about that nor had I really considered like an attachment rupture with my caregivers and so these two were really revelatory um, ideas for me in digging deeper into my recovery as to why I was struggling, why I was struggling to stay sober, while I was struggling to, to kind of understand or find self-compassion for myself. So looking at these two concepts, then early rupture and attachment with your caregivers and patriarchal norms and expectations and culture was really important for me, super important for me to look at in my own recovery. And she spends a lot of time in this book exploring those two concepts. So the second one also in the um, introduction that was really important to me was when she says, most sex and love addicts dissociate during sex. Even if they become aroused and have orgasms during sex, they do it for, to escape not to feel intimate with their partner. Again, that was new language or information for me to consider that most sex and love addicts dissociate during sex. Um, I didn't know at that time really what dissociation was. Um, and so I had to learn a lot about what dissociation was, how it showed up for me, what it meant. As soon as I kind of understood that concept, it was very easy for me to say 100%. When I am acting out, I dissociate during sex. And so that was a, a new concept for me to understand. Uh, if you are interested in kind of a little bit more about that, if you haven't listened to episode 18, which is titled Not About Sex, 
um, I explain a little bit more about intimacy disorders and this transactional intimacy that we create when we have an addictive cycle or problem. And what that means is a lot of times sex was basically like the transaction. It was the payment for me for what I really wanted or was craving from a particular person. And so I dissociated because it's not that I really wanted to be intimate. It's not that I was trying to be intimate with that partner. Um, it was just my payment. It was my transaction. So that's a, it was a really important concept for me to think about it in that way. And she goes on to talk a little bit more and describes a lot more about what that feels like, that dissociation and kind of why we do that. And also the difference between intimacy and intensity. Okay, so that was just, that's just the introduction, guys. That's just two concepts from the introduction. I don't have a concept that I want to share from every chapter. I could easily talk about this book for hours, hours, and the pieces that were important to me, but um, I'm just going to pull out some of the really, really things, really, really important things to me and hope that that's going to give you some insight too. So in chapter one, in chapter one, there is this paragraph or these two paragraphs. Um, in chapter one, she talks about this concept of a double bind and how addiction creates all of these double binds. Patriarchy creates all of these double binds for women. Intimacy can create all of these double binds for women. And that concept of putting things in a double bind, again, was new for me and was really important in understanding the deeper issues at play for me in my own sex addiction. So I'm going to read these two paragraphs. Bear with me a little bit here, but we're going to read these two paragraphs. So research, re, wow, sorry. Research shows that women develop an identity and self-awareness in relationships, not separate from them. Women need relationships to be whole. This is not a sign of weakness. It's healthy to desire intimacy with others. In fact, it's hardwired into the female brain to thrive in connection to another person. Confusion comes when a relationship necessary for self-awareness breeds chronic pain and isolation. You may feel lost, disoriented, and unable to identify why the relationship hurts. Maybe it becomes impossible to be in the relationship, yet impossible to leave. In other words, the very thing you need to thrive and be happy causes you shame and pain. If this happens over and over again, the thing you need most in life becomes impossible to capture, and that creates a double bind. Love and sex addiction is a double bind. That, again, was really important to me. Since that time, I've heard a lot of... Um, I've studied and read and researched a lot about attachment, um, about thriving in relationships, about this idea of threat and attachment. What we know, what attachment theory and what polyvagal theory teach us about our brain and our nervous system is that these, these nerves, we have them, um, they start in our center of our brain, go down our brain stem, um, they kind of down our spinal cord, kind of jet out around our stomach. They're called the vagal nerves, and there's a series of them, so they call it the polyvagal nerves or the polyvagal theory. Poly meaning many, right? That's for our math friends out there. Um, 
So what we know about those nerves is that their whole purpose is survival. They want us to survive. And so they kind of have two main functions or systems that operate um, at the same time in order to make that happen. The first one is threat assessment. Um, if you have a brand new baby or a new infant, if you've seen that, you know that they're kind of very sensitive and constantly surveying their environment for threat, right? They need to be able to see threat, they need to be able to detect threat, and they need to be able to get help. And so we have this threat assessment going on. At the same time, those nerves are also in charge of attachment. We know that we have to attach to a caregiver. If we don't attach to a caregiver, um, our, our lives are in jeopardy. We call that failure to thrive. And infants die, even when all their physical needs are met, if they have not attached to a caregiver, they can p- pass away, failure to thrive. They can also end up with an attachment disorder, um, radical attachment disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, these attachment disorders uh, that create that happen when we don't attach to a caregiver. That's what she's talking about here. Because the thing that we're attached to also becomes a threat, right? When we become attached to people, when we become attached to sex, when we become attached to the pursue, pers- um, yeah, pursuing relationships, then we have this attachment that is also a threat. And these two systems have to operate indiv- independently, but they don't. And so it becomes incredibly confusing for our nervous system and thus for our brains and creates this double bind. It's kind of a problem for us. So she talks a lot in this book about the idea of attachment rupture and what that looks like and how our system becomes confused with that threat and attachment um, mistake that our nervous systems make. Really good concept. If you're not familiar with that, I recommend that you get some information there and read that. Okay, chapter two is, uh, so this is on page 29. She calls this chapter is titled The Dis-Ease, Dis-Ease of Cultural Inheritance. And I just have one sentence I want to share with you. (laughs) She says, addiction is a powerful coping strategy for living in a culture that does not give women the same status as men. One more time. Addiction is a powerful coping strategy for living in a culture that does not give women the same status as men. The next sentence says, addiction is a way to compensate for powerlessness. Uh, Reading that was like kind of uh, exposing another layer of my soul. (laughs) I, I, again, I was kind of ignorant to a lot of the patriarchal issues or cultural stereotypes for women when I started recovery, to be honest. I probably am still ignorant to some of those, but I'm a lot more informed um, and understand a lot more about myself and, and different things. So when we live in this culture that doesn't provide the same status for women as it does for men, addictions, particularly relationship or sex addiction, becomes a powerful coping strategy. Um, This is a lot of reasons also why women go into stripping, um, why women go into uh, prostituting themselves or being prostituted, um, because there is this power that we can get. It kind of compensates for this powerlessness that maybe we feel in general culture. But when we go into this particular area, right, we can gain some of that power back. 
uh, I know for me, kind of exposing a little bit of myself here, um, that was definitely true. I felt powerless around men in general. Um, I didn't feel attractive. I didn't feel like men would want to give me the time of day. My history said that men didn't give me any kind of attention. And growing up in a culture where marriage was highly valued, being desired was highly valued, uh, I felt powerless, completely powerless. But when I went online, Uh, particularly because I started my online behavior before pictures were so readily accessible. It was very easy for me to be whoever I wanted to be online. It was very easy for me to create a whole new persona if I wanted to. It was also very easy for me to just push edges a little bit, which is where I started. Um, I could be a different person. I could act differently. Uh, And so... I gained a lot of power back that way. Um, It wasn't real power, obviously, but it felt powerful. It felt really powerful. And I have worked with a lot in my therapy practice. I have worked with a lot of teenage girls who gain power using their body in that way. And, And it's sad. It's difficult to work with. It's difficult to help them find other ways to gain power because while I do feel there is some shifting going on, we still live, particularly in my area, in a culture that does not give women the same status as men. And that can be really difficult. Uh, in this same chapter, she outlines four cultural beliefs um, that can contribute to this feeling of powerlessness that women can have and that girls can have growing up. So the first one is cultural. These are the cultural beliefs. The first one is I must be good in order to be worthy of love. Second one is if I am not sexual, if I am sexual, I am bad. Third one, I am not really a woman unless someone desires me sexually and or romantically. And fourth, I must be sexual to be lovable. I've often wondered if a lot of the different types of sexual orientations that are emerging are pushback to some of these cultural norms. Um, I must be sexual to be lovable. Well, what if I want to be loved and I don't want to be sexual? But that is a, a definite cultural norm that women grow up with. Um, I'm not really a woman unless someone desires me sexually and or romantically. That's very disempowering if I grow up and boys don't show interest in me or women don't show interest in me, right? Depending upon your orientation. And so then I'm not really a woman. I'm not really desired sexually. And so I may do something else or choose another, another way to express my sexuality or another way to find love. We have a lot of different types of love and a lot of different stereotypes that go on for women in this effort to be connected, to be desirable, to find love. And we have to examine that as women in sex addiction recovery. We have to examine the stereotypes that we have internalized or these cultural beliefs that we've internalized. Also, we have to examine if we're um, projecting those cultural beliefs onto other people. I know I was guilty of that. For sure I was guilty of that. So 
we have to we have to reflect on those. There's a lot of information in the book about how to reflect on those. Um, another another one, chapter three. Again, just one sentence. This is on page forty-one. This one sentence: the delicate concept of self actually forms within relationships and not separate from them. One more time: the delicate concept of self actually forms within relationships and not separate for them. I, um, again, for me, that was, that was kind of new. Like, of course, I mean, it makes sense to me now as I've done a lot of, a lot of healing for my own journey. You know, as a child, we don't have a self-concept. We don't even typically recognize ourselves till we're 18 months or even older in the mirror. We don't understand when we're looking at that, that that's us. Um, or that that's, you know, our reflection, who we are. And so in relationship with caregivers, with other people in our lives, as they reflect back to us who we are, that's how we develop a self-concept. That's why it's so important, you know, if, if as a child you're told things like you're brave, you're courageous, you're such a good kid, right? That's how we develop our concept, our self-concept from the very earliest of ages. But if we're told all the time that we're, you know, need to, we're not strong or we're dumb or we get in the way or we're told, just get out of my way, those types of things, then that's the self-concept we grow up with. That's, that's how we make, that's how we develop who we are. That's why it's so important, so important for kids to have good people in their lives that project good things onto, onto them. That was new for me. Um, I, I mean, of course it makes sense, but I just hadn't really thought about that or thought all the way through that or realized the implications of that in my own personal life. Um, I can look back at things that I was told and responsibilities that I was given that weren't age appropriate were not age appropriate. I grew up real fast. I was parentified pretty quickly in my family. And I, those things became part of my identity. Um, (laughs) I became very much, we've talked about the drama triangle before. I'm very much a rescuer. In fact, my family had a nickname for my friends. I would call them my friends, but my family would call them my projects. Uh, The people that I would try to rescue or try to save from their circumstances or what was going on for them. That's what my family would call them, right? So they would call them my projects. (laughs) That's terrible. You know, that really is terrible. So I, I think it's important to recognize what you have internalized as your self-concept and if that's what you want for your self-concept. Um, another big theme in this book that she talks about, um, is this need for a mother. She calls it mother hunger. And she refers to this idea that when women grow up without a strong woman in their life, um, that, that a lot of their needs go unattended to, um, and there's no real roadmap for them on how to be a woman. So I, I have this one little paragraph kind of about that, but there's a, her whole, the next book is called Mother Hunger. Um, and we'll review that in a few months because it's amazing. But this one little paragraph says, it's impossible to heal what you can't identify. 
The type of neglect suffered by daughters of vulnerable mothers routinely goes unnoticed, even by professionals. But what you've experienced is a role inversion that also left you without a guide, without a map for how to be a woman. You needed a mother. To the outside world, it may have appeared that you had one. But somewhere inside, you knew the truth. She was maybe weak, vulnerable, and unable to provide you with the necessary guidance and support. I adore my mother um, for so many reasons, and I completely identify with this par- with this paragraph and with this line that she was vulnerable and unable to provide you with the necessary guidance and support you needed. It's difficult. Um, I do love in this book the exploration of mother hunger. Uh, if that's something that kind of resonates with you, this idea that you didn't have a map, this idea that you didn't know what womanhood could look like, um, I highly encourage you to read this book and, and look at these ideas of mother hunger. I also love that Kelly very compassionately talks about this as we're not trying to blame mothers, right? We do a lot of mother blaming in this world, but that's not what this is about. This is about a, just a need that went unfulfilled. And it can contribute to a lot of attachment issues as an adult. Um, And I firmly believe 100% that my mother did the very best that she could in those circumstances. So there's no reason to place any kind of blame here. 100% she did everything that she could. And and that that was all she could offer me. I can't be mad about that. That's all she could offer. But identifying this whole of what does womanhood look like or what does my brand of womanhood look like was highly important to me and um, really important for me to investigate and look at because I didn't have a guide Um, and I kind of went off of some stereotypes in the world or different things, cultural things, rather than really look at my own brand of womanhood and what that looked like for me. And it was a fun experience to figure that out and I feel like it's still evolving um, but it's been been a beautiful thing in my life okay further on in the book she talks a lot about this attachment like we talked about this attachment issue and more about dissociation um, and so further on I'm on page 113 in the book Um, there's this idea about how dissociation and addiction is kind of this match made in heaven. I want to read this one paragraph. It's at the bottom of the page. Herein lies the double bind of love and sex addiction. The brain has learned that relationships are dangerous. Relationships, closeness, intimacy have been twisted into an automatic alarm system. That's that This is me speaking, not Kelly. This is that mix up between threat and attachment, right? So relationships have been twisted into this automatic alarm system. Okay, going back to the book. She's learned um, in youth that fantasy and sexual arousal are safer than people. They take the place of healthy human connection. As a result, in adulthood, relationships with others don't have much of a chance. She has learned to rely on herself. Even if she's actively pursuing love, internally she's created a barrier to intimacy because fantasy makes it difficult to see another person honestly. Or if she's using pornography for sexual gratification, no partner will be able to satisfy her and she'll grow bored in a relationship. 
that's me. That's like the description of who I was in addiction. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm still continuously working on. Um, one of my kind of default settings is that uh, relationships are a liability. And what I mean by that is there's risk involved with the relationships and they, um, I, I've had to work to recognize the assets that relationships bring to my balance sheet, not just the liability of relationships. That's my intimacy disorder. And that's something that I'm continually working on. I, I feel like I've made so much progress and am continuing to make progress in that area, but that is my default setting. Relationships are a liability. And so I've had to actively fight against that and kind of, again, pull apart those systems of threat and attachment that have been confused and, and mixed up. Um, I, I think it's really important also in this paragraph, uh, she, you know, she outlines, right? As a result, in adulthood, relationships with others don't have much of a chance. She has learned to rely on herself. And that's definitely something that I see in a lot of the women that I work with, both in coaching and in therapy, is this um, highly developed self-reliance, highly developed self-reliance. Or the opposite extreme of that is a highly developed sense of um, learned helplessness, right? One of those two extremes. And that can be difficult, definitely. Okay, moving on further in the book, I'm on page 135 now. Um, she's talking, now she moves into the part about the book. So the first parts of the book, I should have said that at the beginning, the first parts are much more educational. And then at the end, there is a section about healing and different chapters about healing. This one's about withdrawal and what happens when you stop your addictive behaviors. And while my therapist had told me that you know, withdrawal is real, of course. It's not, even though we're not necessarily, quote, with a substance addiction, right? But withdrawal definitely happens in these areas. I loved her kind of wording here. She says, withdrawal is a critical part of recovery. Destructive behavior has to stop. Unfortunately, your brain will struggle without your, quote, drug. Without the high of fantasy and arousal, you will come face to face with grief. That was my experience. Without the high of fantasy and arousal, you will come face to face with grief. Feelings of being defective, unlovable, and unworthy emerge. At times, without indulging in bottom line behaviors, your addiction will seem intensely compelling. Hold to the path, she says. These are just feelings, not reality, and they will pass. By facing the grief, you have the opportunity to heal. That alone in this book was worth, was worth it for me. I didn't want to face my own grief. I didn't want to look at that at all. Um, but I love the way she kind of um, put those two things together that if I face my grief, I will have the opportunity to heal. She continues, you can't heal what you can't see. Your addiction has kept you a stranger to the painful beliefs you have about yourself in withdrawal, these lies will be unveiled so you can heal them. And I just love the wording that she chooses. Um, you can't heal what you can't see. That's so true. 
And we can't see so many different things when we are in addiction or especially when we're in active addictive behavior. So many things are hidden from us. And so going through with that withdrawal is an essential process so that we can move forward with our recovery. And then kind of just to close up um, this beautiful book um, focused again on women in sex addiction and the women's experience in recovery and healing. This is in her last chapter on page 172. She talks about how recovery is a journey and not a destination. And I love these words. As your recovery deepens, so does your capacity for intimacy. You no longer seek to avoid pain, pleasure, or reality. Efforts to manipulate people will disappear. As you shed the trappings of your disease, the former haze covering your days lifts and clears. You no longer wake up filled with dread and anxiety. Instead, you greet a new morning with anticipation and excitement, knowing that blessings are in store for you. You find joy in loving others and contributing to their well-being. Simple tasks bring you pleasure and satisfaction. Self-pity and despair are replaced by peace of peace of self-acceptance and love. I love those words. I feel like they're so hopeful about what recovery can look like if we will go through the difficult process of withdrawal, if we set our boundaries, if we start to find sobriety. We do have some of these gifts of recovery. You find joy in loving others and contributing to their well-being. Simple tasks bring you pleasure and satisfaction. Self-pity and despair are replaced by the peace of self-acceptance and love. I, that has been my experience in recovery. Um, so much so. I love myself so much. I have learned so much about who I am. I have a level of self-acceptance that I've never had in my entire life. And I love this book for what it gave to me and what it, uh, it did for my own recovery. I'm grateful for women in recovery, women who talk about recovery, women who help other women in recovery. And that's definitely what this book was for me, a gift from another woman. Um, and, and be able to hear other women's experiences. Throughout the book, there are four kind of case studies that she continues to go back to and talk about their experiences in recovery, which was also very helpful. I also just want to do a little caveat real quick. I, I'm very much a person where I will take what's, what works and leave the rest, right? Um, this last summer, I did a book study group with uh, six women and this book, and we went through it. And there were a couple women who really struggled with the content of the book um, because their addictive behavior did not at all look at all what like what this book describes. Um, no, none of the case studies really related to them. And that's a really difficult position to be in, especially when you're holding this book up as kind of the, you know, this is a woman's guide to recovery or to, uh, to healing and sex addiction recovery. So I want to just throw that out there, that not every book is going to be a fit for you or a match for you. And that is so good because that's why we have so many books out there and so many options for you. So if as a woman in sex addiction recovery, you know, maybe addictive relationships aren't really part of your 
your acting out behavior, so maybe this book doesn't feel like it fits. I would still in, in, encourage you to read that because there is a lot of information in there and a lot of really good recovery-related information for you to read. But take what works and leave the rest because that's where we really learn. So thank you, Kelly, for this beautiful book. Um, I hope that you find it is helpful today to kind of think about some of these ideas um, and and hear my experience with them as well. Um, remember that no matter where you're at in your life, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how many addictive relationships you feel you have had or are currently in, you are worth recovery, 100% worth it. If you don't believe that, you can lean on me because I do until you're ready to believe that and accept that for yourself as well. Remember that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.